Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at Raw Attitude Pod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. All right, fans, we have a very special treat for you this week. Joining the Raw Attitude Podcast for the first time all the way from down under, he is joining the show, even though his daughter was born just three days ago. Congratulations again, by the way. It is none other than Lee Carlos Cunningham, the host of the Raw is Nitro podcast. So, Lee, would you care to tell the Raw Attitude podcast fans about Raw is Nitro and why they should be listening to it? Love to, yeah. Um, it's just something, a little something I started uh, about six months or so back. Uh, after hearing your podcast and the fine work you're doing in a one-man show, I thought, well, I could probably give that a go since all my fellow wrestling fans live on the other side of the world and it's next to impossible to get on and do this together. So yeah. we started picking head-to-head shows from mostly WCW and WWE, WWF at the time, but pretty much any two shows that competed and comparing them head-to-head to pick ourselves a winner. Yeah, and you're doing a fantastic job with it so far. I, I think I said it on the last podcast, but uh, anybody, anybody who does a one-man pod is A-OK with me. So uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it really is great. I, I like having the, um, the sort of head-to-head matchup where you're not just going, you know, well, Nitro won the rating or Raw won the rating. You're actually kind of going in-depth and saying step-by-step, this is what this is what I think won in this department. This is what I think won in this department. So I'm, I'm definitely quite a big fan of the Raw's Nitro podcast. It was a really good idea until I realized I had to review pay-per-views, and that's six hours before I can put anything onto audio. Other than that, it's really good fun. <laughs> and it's not always six good hours either. Yeah. So, especially if you're in 95, I think both Raw or both the WWF and WCW in 95 were a little bit, uh, I don't know. I've just gotten through 95, and thankfully we can see the hollow ground of 96, 97 in the distance now. Yes, there you go. 96, I still feel like, is a little eh, but once you get into 97, especially... Well, actually, I guess 96 and WCW, about mid, mid-96 mid gets uh, really interesting. And then uh, 97 and WWF, I think, is is right around the time, maybe not when the Attitude Era starts, but when they start getting a bit edgier with Stone Cold kind of rising to prominence. So that's that's good. You might, you might have a little ways to go before it gets truly super entertaining, but it'll definitely be uh, some, some good stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, it'll be worth the wait. Exactly, exactly. It's even actually funny seeing like with this podcast, the very first episode I did was like the it was like a Christmas episode of Raw from this tiny little arena in Lowell, Massachusetts that probably seated like a thousand people. And now that we're, you know, obviously with the episode you just watched, we're at East Rutherford, New Jersey in a good sized arena where they've done pay-per-views before. So it's nice to see the rise of the WWF, I guess is what I'm saying, as as Stone Cold and The Rock and Triple H are, are coming to prominence. Yeah, well, watching this episode was a, a little slice of heaven, uh, coming away from <laughs> the likes of the Yeti and the Dungeon of Doom and getting Stone Cold oh. and The Rock. It was uh, it was certainly a nice change of pace. Yeah. You're saying you're, you're a big fan of the Brawl for All, is what you're saying? 
<laughs> well, we're going to talk about that pretty soon. <laughs> oh, yes, we are. But, uh, well, actually, I guess that's a great segue. So do you want to dive right into it then? Let's do it. Fantastic. So it is Monday, July 13th, 1998, and we are live from the Continental Airlines Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Now, fun fact, not one, not two, but three summer slams have occurred in this arena, 1989, 1997, and 2007. Some other noteworthy shows which took place in this building include the Raw after WrestleMania 29, where Dolph Ziggler cashed in his Money in the Bank contract on Alberto Del Rio. Extreme Rules 2014, where Daniel Bryan had his only successful pay-per-view title retention before he had to relinquish the belt due to injury. And King of the Ring 2001, where Kurt Angle repeatedly dropped Shane McMahon on his fucking head. Good times. Good times in this arena. So, oh, sorry, were you going to say something? No, no, no. So I'm just nodding along and remembering that. I, I winced a little bit, I think you probably heard there, thinking about yeah, Shane hitting the concrete. Oh my god, it's just terrible. But also very entertaining to watch that match. It's a, it's a really great match, even with Shane getting dropped on his head 20 fucking times. Yeah, really good stuff. That um, that finish, the angle slam off the board, off the top rope, was still one of oh, my favorite oh. finishes. Yeah, that was amazing. Which really, it's kind of funny they even had to resort to that, because when Shane was basically dead by that point, you would think, just roll him in the ring and pin him. But it's like, nope, we still got to still gotta get that spot out of the way where you're probably ridiculously concussed, but we have to drop you off the top rope too. Yeah, they could have saved the EMTs a bit of a walk down the aisle and just taken him away there. Yeah. Also, that was Angle's third match of the night, by the way. I think people lose lose track of that in retrospect, but he was in the King of the Ring tournament. That was his, his third match that evening. So the man was a workhorse and is deserving of his Hall of Fame entry, I would say. Oh, yeah. But anyway, so we begin with a recap of last week's episode of Raw, where Vince McMahon booked a triple threat match between The Undertaker, Kane, and Mankind for the right to become the number one contender to Stone Cold Steve Austin's WWF title. Kane and Mankind showed up for the event, but when The Undertaker's music played, he was nowhere to be found. Eventually, Kane clobbered Mankind in the head with a chair and pinned him to win the number one contendership. But then Kane removed his mask to reveal that it was actually The Undertaker in the Kane costume the entire time. Fucking awesome moment. Austin and The Undertaker are now on a collision course, or one might say a highway to hell. So let's see how that plays out this week. Cue yeah, up the that, that was... Oh, yeah, so, sorry, I just wanted to say as well, that, that you were spot on last week in, in or the last show, that Kane impersonation was dead on by The Undertaker. Yeah, absolutely. I completely forgot that moment happened. So I was totally fooled when he removed the mask. I was like, holy shit, I legit thought it was Kane. So pretty quality there. Quality impression of his own brother by The Undertaker. Yeah, I guess that's probably why they called him Kane The Undertaker when he started. That's Oh, wow, that's a good pull. That's a good pull. (laughs) Way back in like 1990 or whatever it was. Yeah, I'm that old. Yeah, me, me too. Oh, me too. I am as well. I actually was watching that when he debuted, and I was, I think I was pretty scared as a, as a young child seeing The Undertaker, so... Oh, yeah, Very I can effective. vividly remember hiding behind the couch in 1990-91. So we're going to queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs this week include, Does China have a vagina? Sonny's having my baby. Nitro girls are hookers. Venus wants Uranus, and perhaps most perplexingly, Scheme Gene gave Matt HIV, so <laughs> R.I.P. Matt, I suppose. Uh, Lee, did you notice any other good signs out there? I picked a few up, actually. Um, I, the first one I saw was a big I Miss Sean, not knowing anything about this episode. That was cool. Um, yeah. Ran- randomly, some guy in the front row had one that just said Tim and Bob. 
the episode was dated by an Undertaker killed Kenny sign for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a couple more. There was one that said, Bob Holly makes me melancholy. Yep, I was going to point that one out later too. And a, my favorite for the night was Bring Back Demolition. Oh, I didn't see that one. Well, I, at the time, I think Barry Darso was in WCW, so they probably... And Crush was too, so I guess they could have. Yeah, I guess so. so. I'm, I'm honestly surprised WCW never actually had that thought. Like, wait, we got Darso and we got Brian Clark, so oh, let's... Let's make a little magic here. I'm still bummed we never got uh, Demolition versus Legion of Doom, but that's a whole other story. So we officially opened the show with, holy shit, Shawn Michaels coming to the ring. I found that to be quite the nice surprise, but as you mentioned, some of the fans had Shawn Michaels signed, so I guess it wasn't a surprise to them. Maybe the WWF announced it in advance to get a ratings pop. I don't know. But yeah, it was a surprise be... to me at least. Oh, Absolutely. So for those of you scoring at home, this is the first time we've seen HBK on television since he lost the WWF title to Steve Austin in the main event of WrestleMania 14 three and a half months ago. At this point in his career, it goes without saying that his back injury is still too severe for him to compete in the ring, but he's going to grace us with his presence anyway. The last time we saw HBK, he was the leader of D-Generation X and a super dickhead heel, but he's smiling, slapping hands with the fans, and acting quite jovial, so I guess you could consider this kind of a face turn. He poses in the ring for a bit, but he doesn't get on the microphone. Instead, he heads over to the commentary table, where he joins Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. JR asks Michaels when we'll see him in the ring again, to which HBK responds that he isn't sure because, at this point, his return to wrestling was obviously still very much in doubt. Little did we realize it would be four full years before he would don the tights once more. So, Lee, what did you think of the surprise Shawn Michaels' appearance to open the show, and did you enjoy his commentary throughout the night? Yeah, it was a pleasant surprise for me. Um, the, no the big note I had upon him coming out was, again, this show was definitely dated by Shawn Michaels' dress sense, and um, <laughs> the first words out of his mouth were, HBK is back in the his house, so definitely yeah. dated where we were. But pleasant surprise, and I think Sean's a, a pretty decent commentator, if I'm being honest as well. Yeah, I agree with you as well. I, I was kind of dreading it a little bit for him being, you know, sort of a, 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 I think it was his first time doing a full show. He's obviously done guest commentary before, but I think he actually did acquit himself quite nicely. He didn't have to do too much heavy lifting, granted, with Lawler and JR there, but yeah, I, I thought he definitely acquitted himself pretty nicely as a commentator. So fans, if you want to go back and see that, Sean, you want to see Shawn Michaels do commentary for an entire two-hour show, this is the show for you. Although he, he does have a slip up or two, which I'll get to in, uh, in just a little bit. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think I've got that note too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, overall thumbs up for Shawn Michaels as a commentator. So the lights in the arena then go out, which means it's time for the man who ended Shawn Michaels' career on two separate occasions, The Undertaker. And speaking of ending careers, Taker almost gets his ended here because when he stands on the ring steps and raises his arms to turn on the lights... Kane's turnpost pyro accidentally explodes right in his fucking face. Jesus Christ. One week after impersonating Kane, The Undertaker almost ended up living the Kane gimmick by becoming horribly burned and disfigured. I have no idea how they fucked that up so badly, but they're really lucky Taker wasn't seriously hurt there. I was also particularly amused by this botch because the whole episode of Raw consists of various people wondering if Kane and The Undertaker are in cahoots, but if you took that explosion as kayfabe, it would seem that Kane tried to melt his own brother's face off like the Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, Lee, what did you think of that particular botch? Well, I've got two notes on this. First of all, Undertaker is an absolute boss because he barely flinched with fire in his <laughs> face. That's true. 
he did not even take one step down those steps. So I, I was mightily impressed with his ability to stand there and go, you know what, I'm not giving up my gimmick for a silly thing like burns to the face. And secondly, I don't know if you noticed later on in the night, but it was only one corner turnbuckle of Kane's pyro that exploded. And when yep. Kane comes out later, not to give it away, the other three all go off and that one doesn't. So I found that yep. pretty amusing as well. I, I actually have that in my next section too. But I, I don't know, like normally when, when Taker you know, does the, the quick arm raise, you get the explodey noise. And there's not typically pyro that goes along with it, but they shot off the pyro in his fucking face for some reason. I was like, how do you make that mistake? Like, I could see if maybe they typically have turn post pyro for Taker at that moment, but how do they accidentally set that off like right then and there? It seemed so bizarre. And it obviously wasn't part of the show because they don't make any mention of it. Like, you can hear Shawn Michaels on commentary kind of go like, whoa, but... They, they don't actually say, oh, Kane's pyro just exploded in Taker's goddamn face. So really, really weird stuff. I don't know how that happened. But uh, again, like you said, Taker basically just kind of like turns his head to the right instead of instead of being like, what the fuck? So definitely a pro too. I guess that's why Taker's been around for almost 30 goddamn years because he can he really knows how to sell the character. Oh, yeah. So anyway, Taker's opponent tonight is Vader. But as soon as the Mastodon enters the ring, the lights go out once again. Kane, Mankind, and Paul Bearer then walk down to the ring, and Kane lights the turnposts on fire, but as you said, the one that exploded in Taker's face obviously does not go off a second time, so I guess not even Kane has the power to make the same turnpost pyro go off Did on you multiple ca- occasions. Did you catch Invader's entrance? I don't know if he does this regularly in 98, because I've not watched a lot of these shows, but he comes out onto the ramp and does his two Vs uh, symbols with his hands and a little side-to-side dance. Mm-hmm. And with, the, with the red mask, I was thinking it was more like Zoidberg time than Vader time. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the standard for him at this point. Okay. But the other thing, too, though, the thing that is completely, con- I guess, confounding, confusing, whatever you want to say, is Kane lost, or excuse me, rather Vader lost his mask versus mask match to Kane at Over the Edge, and he's been wearing his mask ever fucking since. So I don't know why that is. Maybe it was just he was supposed to have it taken off that one night, but it was a mask versus mask match, so I assumed he wasn't going to be wearing it. But that was like the next show he had the mask back on, so whatever. So The Undertaker uses the distraction of Kane's pyro to jump Vader, so the match is now underway. As mentioned a moment ago, JR and Lawler are speculating that Taker and Kane are in cahoots, because how else could Taker have gotten his brother's costume last week? I suppose the only other answer is that The Undertaker beat him until he was unconscious, and then stripped off all of his clothes, or, as Jimmy Snuka calls it, foreplay. <laughs> R.I.P. Jimmy Snuka. So getting back to the match, pretty back-and-forth affair with one of the highlights being Vader hitting a second-rope splash onto Taker, but it only got a two-count because that's where Vader is at this point. Shortly thereafter, Taker hit Vader with a chokeslam, then impressively followed it up with a tombstone, which was enough to score the three-count on the world's only 450-pound jobber. After the match ended, Mankind grabbed a steel chair and snuck into the ring behind the Undertaker. He raised the chair over his head as though he was about to hit Taker with it. But Kane grabbed the chair out of Mankind's hands before he could hit him. Taker rolled to the outside and grabbed a chair of his own, and Kane then hit Vader with a shitty-looking chair shot. To add further confusion, JR played it up as though he wasn't sure if Kane was saving his own brother from a chair shot, or if he was trying to take the chair so he himself could hit the Undertaker. Kane and Mankind then headed backstage, and it seems like we're now left with more questions than answers. So, Lee, what did you think of the Undertaker-Vader match and the subsequent shenanigans? I actually really enjoyed the match. I mean, it was a, a raw match, so it wasn't all that long, but mm-hmm. Vader 
he's one of those guys that I think his size and presence alone will always give him credibility, even if he's been booked poorly. The choke slam by Undertaker was mighty impressive, and um, the tombstone as well, obviously. I, I don't know if you caught as well, but during that match, Undertaker hit almost like a famous or a rocker dropper on yeah, Vader, yeah. which was something I'd never seen him do before, so that was cool as well. Taking a page out of Billy Gunn's book. <laughs> yeah, that's always a smart move. The Billy Gundertaker, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's not get that one started. Let's not get that uh, get that going. I should say. Let's hashtag um, it. I say. Yeah, hashtag Billy Gundertaker. Use it on your Twitter machine. I agree with you though. Good big man versus big man match. It actually left me thinking. I wasn't sure. Did we ever get like an Undertaker Vader program at any point? We got a pay-per-view match um i want to say rumble 97 correct me on that if i'm wrong but i think it was more more to do with the paul bearer undertaker program and his loose affiliation with vader at the time right good call good call because then we had the like the in your house final four the month later undertaker and vader were both in that one too i think yeah, I think they ended up out of circumstance when they decided not to give Vader the title and, and move that Sid into that spot instead. I think Undertaker and Sid just basically crossed paths as a, yeah. as a result of the, the fallout. Yep, I think you're right. Good call, good call. But it uh, leaves me wishing we had seen a bit more Undertaker versus Vader because, yeah, this was a good a good solid Raw match, as you said. Not, you're not going to get, you know, 15, 20 minutes, but, but a solid five. So, yeah, definitely pretty good. Uh, I should also mention we got a quick shot of Edge hanging out in the crowd after the match. So you may recall that after seven weeks of vignettes, Edge finally wrestled his debut match on Raw three weeks ago, but he almost paralyzed Jose Estrada during that contest, so he hasn't wrestled since. It's kind of funny to think how low his stock must have been at this point compared to where his career eventually ends up. So quite, quite the turnaround for the Rated R superstar. I think um, Emelina just broke that seven-week vignette record recently too, didn't she? <laughs> Yeah, what was that, like 16 weeks or something like that? Something like that, and then a 30-second promo and it's done. There you go. Maybe it's not. We'll have to tune in to find out. Yeah, it's a cliffhanger. She's she's saying she's going to go back to Emma, but maybe she'll change her mind again. Who knows? Do you remember where they were airing vignettes? Uh, Like, Brodus Clay was off TV for a while, and the vignettes they aired for him were him being like, I'm Brodus Clay and I'm coming back. And then when he comes back, he was just randomly the Funkasaurus. I wasn't really watching at that time. I've seen them since, but I don't remember it specifically because I, I had about two years where I didn't really watch anything other than 1990 Royal Rumbles. Nice. Well, I can't say I blame you there. But yeah, basically what they were doing was like literally every week it was like, it wasn't Brodus Clay being like, I'm coming back and I'm going to be wacky. It was like, I'm coming back, I'm going to be a killing machine. And then they re-debut him as the Funkasaurus with like no buildup whatsoever. And it was... One of the most confusing things I, I remember seeing in recent history, just being like, what? Why is he dancing now? He's a, he's a dinosaur? I don't understand. So that kind of is what the, the Emelina thing reminded me of a little bit. Yeah, there's a history of it. I mean, Sean O'Hare is another one that jumps to mind for me. He was very much really cool looking uh, vignettes and nothing ever came of that either. Right. And then they put him with Roddy Piper. Yep. Wasted. Totally wasted. Anywho, so after a commercial break, we got our first... Brawl for all, fight of the evening, Bart Gunn versus Bob Holly, who looked like he came to the ring wearing a pair of grey boxer shorts. So amusingly, <laughs> since both of these guys are still in the new Midnight Express together, they are respectively announced as Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart, so that was pretty quality right there. I'm pretty sure there's a Jim Cornette shoot interview out there where he says he resigned as the manager of the Express at this time, because he figured that if they were going to make them fight each other legitimately, the tag team was essentially dead. Although, in fairness, I would say the team was pretty much dead from day one, but that's a whole other story. 
So basically, the fight starts with Bob and Bart staring each other down as the ref reads them the rules, and then, in a moment I was not initially sure was a work or a shoot, when Bart turned his back on Bob to walk to his corner, Bob Holly shoved him in the back, and something tells me he might wish he hadn't have done that. So Bart Gunn pretty much dominated round one right from the start, nailing Bob Holly with a sharp jab to the face only a few seconds into the fight. He was able to hit some haymakers on Holly as well, which I quite enjoyed seeing since we now know what a surly dick Bob Holly is. When the round ended, Holly's bleach blonde hair was totally messed up, and he looked like shit. And also, as you said, when he was sitting in the corner, you could clearly see a fan in the crowd holding up a sign which said, Bob Holly makes me melancholy. Talk about perfect timing there. How did that fan even know Bob Holly was going to be on Raw, is what I want to know, because he's barely ever on the show at this point. Round two was more of the same as Bart Gunn just absolutely beat the shit out of Bob Holly, landing several stiff punches to his face and staggering him with one of them. To his credit, though, Holly did not go down, but it was obvious that Bart was easily winning the fight at this point. Round three was pretty much the same story. Bart beat the crap out of Holly, but didn't get the knockout. So when the fight was over, Holly had a welt under his eye, and it was an easy call as to who was the winner. Tony Chimmel announced that Bodacious Bart had won the fight. After it was over, Bart went over to Bob in a showing of sportsmanship, as if to say, we still cool? But instead, Bob Holly threw a punch at him, and both men started brawling with each other until WWF officials got between them. I assume that part was a work, but they at least did a good job of making the post-fight brawl look pretty convincing. Also, in retrospect, I suppose Bob Holly deserves a tip of the cap for not being knocked out by Bart Gunn, because, well, let's just say that Bodacious Bart is going to make quite a showing for himself by the time this tournament is over. So, Lee, what were your thoughts on this brawl-for-all matchup between two tag team partners? Well, much like you said a moment ago, I was wondering about the whole work-or-shoot thing. The the after-the-match thing was very strange to me, because I find it hard to think that you could have a legitimate fight, and then as soon as it ended, have a planned fake fight afterwards. I just, I couldn't wrap my head around that at all. Yeah, I, I guess I just assumed, like, they had the plan for the beginning of the fight in the end. Like, okay, since you guys are fighting each other, we're going to break up the tag team. So, Bob, you shove him at the beginning, and then at the end, no matter the result, you know, fight with each other again. I I assume that was what the intention was, but they, they did a good job. I guess you could say they did a good job kind of blurring the lines, because I was like, now, it seems like it's part of an angle, but it's a legitimate fight, So, but I, but I don't know. I just assumed they, they worked out the beginning and end part, but but I don't know. Overall, though, I think uh, it's it's a sh- real shame that we had to do this on the week my daughter was born because any other time, <laughs> watching my first ever brawl for all bout would have taken the cake for most exciting thing of the week. <laughs> oh, this was your first ever brawl for all bout. Other than uh, other than the WrestleMania 15, if you count that, I've, I've obviously right. seen that. I've never seen an, an actual brawl for all bout. There you go. Actually, well, I'll give you a little trivia right here. So WrestleMania 15, Bart Gunn versus Butterbean is one of only two legitimate fights in WrestleMania history. Do you know what the second legitimate fight was? I do not. The other one was Big Show versus Aki Bono in a sumo contest. That was a that was a shoot? That was a shoot, apparently. No. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was obviously incredibly entertaining, so you might think it was, you know, sports entertainment, but obviously it was, you know, but it was a shoot. Just a little tidbit there. But yeah, so first brawl for all matchup. Again, a bit of a tip of the cap to Bob Holly, as much as I hate to do it because he's such a surly dick, but he did manage to go uh, the distance with Bart Gunn, and not a lot of people will be able to say they did that. So so good for, for bombastic Bob. So up next, we got some clips of DX impersonating the Nation of Domination from last week. 
They re-showed all of Jason Sensation's spot-on impression of Owen Hart, and we then returned live, where we saw that Jason was actually sitting in with the commentary team. And I'll just point out, he may have made fun of Owen's outfit last week, but he himself is dressed like a complete tool, wearing a multicolored vest over a DX t-shirt. Yikes. <laughs> so Lawler asked him to do some more impersonations, and you know what? I'm actually going to play them for you right here. Can you give me a little more Owen Hart? Enough is enough, and it's time for a change! <laughs> Woo! Listen, can, you can do other people, right? Yeah, I can do anybody. Can you do, can you do Owen's brother, Brett the Hitman Hart? Well, you know what? I am the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Who in the hell is that? Some mid-carder? <laughs> That's good, but do Owen again one more time. That's yeah. right. I am an aardvark. Woo! <laughs> Listen, can you, can, you do, um, can you do the Undertaker? Kane, I will bury you. Rest in peace. <laughs> Great. We just got joined by the Heartbreak Kid. Can you do him? The Heartbreak Kid, Sean Marshall. Bottom line is, you want to step in the ring with Stone Cold Steve Austin, I'll dump you on your head and then whoop your ass, and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. <laughs> that's terrific. But my favorite has got to be... Owen Hart, give me some more Owen Hart. It's the best. I know I'm late, but my nose got here 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Woo! We then cut backstage where each member of the Nation of Domination responds to the parody by cutting a promo on the DX member who imitated them. The Godfather actually gets in an interesting line here where he talks about Billy Gunn, so I'm going to play that clip for you as well. Hey, silly badass, so you want to be a pimp? Well, I'm going to show you, baby, that pimping ain't easy. That's right. The Godfather says that Billy Gunn may try to impersonate a pimp, but he's going to find out that pimping ain't easy. Now, for those of you who are listening at home and not actually watching these episodes of Raw, Kama is calling himself the Godfather, but he has not yet segued into his pimp Godfather character, which we all come to know and love. At this point, he's basically just a dude who wears a bowler hat and chops a cigar, but it appears as though he was giving us a quick indication as to what was about to come. Did you notice that, Lee, the, uh, the pimpin' ain't easy line? Yeah, he's certainly halfway through his metamorphosis there, which was re- very cool to see. Yeah, I, going back before this, I completely forgot that there was a period where he was calling himself the Godfather, but he wasn't the pimp Godfather. He was just kind of you know, a guy in the nation, and he didn't want to call himself Kama anymore. So th- that period has actually lasted for, for quite a bit of him just being the Godfather. So very, very interesting, because if you go back and watch that DX Nation of Domination parody, you know, Billy Gunn's not dressed as a pimp. He's just dressed as the Godfather. So, yeah, he's kind of in that weird middle ground. But anyway, back to the Nation promo. So Owen Hart takes particular offense to Jason Sensation's impression of him, and he threatens to come to the ring and, quote, slap the piss out of him. Jason looks nervous, but Lawler tells him not to worry and asks him to impersonate Owen again. He does, but that turns out to be a mistake, as Owen then runs down to ringside, and he does indeed slap Jason in the face, which appears to bloody his mouth. No word as to whether or not the piss came out of him, though. <laughs> the, um, the, the impersonations that Jason did there, though, were spot on. I was a big fan of all of them. I thought every one of them, if I'd have closed my eyes, he could have fooled me. The most interesting part of that segment for me, though, was Shawn Michaels still obviously having not found God and taking another cheap shot at Bret Hart. Yeah. Who's that, some mid-carder? <laughs> yeah, great line. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was good. Yeah, his his impressions are are quite solid, I must say. Uh, yeah, he must I, have a lot of free time on his hands. Yeah, I was quite impressed. I mean, he, he flipped from one to the other quite easily as well. So I I, I would actually like to find out if he, if he did any more wrestling impersonations along the line and have a listen because I thought they were pretty good. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that um, that Jerry Lawler was going to throw a curveball in there, like, oh yeah, you know, do do Shawn Michaels, do the Undertaker, now do D'Lo Brown, <laughs> do Quang, do, do yeah, there you go. But sadly, no, he just stuck to the he just stuck to the big players, I guess. Although if I was Jerry Lawler, I'd be like, oh, do me, do me, but I guess not. Yeah. Although not the first time Jerry Lawler has said "do me," but usually, <laughs> usually that's usually that's at a, on a high school campus somewhere. So. <laughs> I was going to say it probably wouldn't be the first time on commentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. So Owen then rolls Jason's sensation into the ring and puts him in the sharpshooter as Jason frantically taps the mat and screams in pain. Amusingly, the crowd chants for HBK, thinking he might be the one to make the save, but clearly that wasn't in the cards. The other members of the nation come to the ring and try to get Owen to break the hold, and then D-Generation X runs out behind them and clears the nation out of the ring. I have to say, I did enjoy Jason's impressions, but I think I enjoyed Owen beating his ass even more. So, Lee, what did you think of this segment overall? And more importantly, can you do any wrestling impressions? Um, well, the segment I really enjoyed. I thought um, that slap from Owen was one of the most brutal slaps you'll ever see. Uh, yeah. he, he legitimately bloodied his mouth up there. And then he ragdolled him into the ring to put him in the sharpshooter. So, fa- fair play to Jason for taking that. DX, when they came out, the crowd were hot for them. I never knew DX in this period were this hot. I always loved them, but I thought that was just me. As far as wrestling impersonations, about the only one I've ever got halfway close would be Paul Bearer. So when I was a, a younger boy in a slightly higher voice, my, ooh, yes, was, was a little bit better than what it is now. Yeah, yeah, still pretty good, though. Still quite solid. I don't know if I can do too many wrestling impressions. Just just D'Lo Brown. I can only do D'Lo Brown, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. But, it, but it, it requires shaking my head back and forth, and that doesn't work very well in, uh, in podcast form. No, I'm imagining it, though. But I'll, I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll start to work on some and see how far I get. So when we come back from commercial, The Rock and Owen Hart are back in the ring, but DX have headed backstage to make sure that Jason's sensation gets medical attention. However, Triple H and X-Pac then awkwardly come right back out from backstage because it's now time for our next match, WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock and Owen Hart versus European Champion Triple H and X-Pac accompanied by China. When Rock and Pac brawl to the outside of the ring, we can clearly see a fan in the front row holding up a sign which says, Hey Owen, two words, call Martha. So whatever you do, don't tell Martha Hart about that sign, or she'll probably sue to have this episode of Raw taken off the network. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. What was the... I don't even know what the meaning of that sign was supposed to be. Like, "Eh, call your wife. Okay. That was one of them just a little bit too smarky signs, wasn't it? It's, it, it? There was no angle ever with Martha Hart, so it was just a, I know your wife's name. I got That's the impression I got. Yeah, it was probably the same guy who held up that sign that said Kane Dewey. Yeah, that's what sprung to mind for me. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. At one point on commentary, Shawn Michaels says, You got two click buddies out there whipping ass, and shit's gonna go down. So amusingly, amusingly, when he says that, you can actually see him in the background of the shot put his hand over his mouth as if to say, oh, oh, I just said the word shit on live TV. The WWE Network actually leaves the S-bomb intact, but I went back and checked, and HBK's line was actually censored 
on the original Raw broadcast. So clearly, we're really getting our nine ninety nine worth because they leave in the naughty language. So did you notice uh, HBK's S-bomb there, Lee? I did, and I think on commentary, he seemed to get stuck to which era of Shawn Michaels was coming out because he brings out the DX edge with dropping the word shit on commentary. But not too long after that, we got the second, I got news for you of the night and harp straight back to his first heel run. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. I forgot he used to do that. I guess this was just a this was just a test night for HBK to see where he was going to go from here. So it'll actually be interesting for me too because I I know eventually he comes back into an on camera role, but I don't think at this point I I think this is just a one off and maybe he comes back further down the line. But if I'm incorrect about that, then uh, I look forward to being proven wrong. If he wants to stick around for commentary for a few more episodes, I'm totally fine with it. So I guess I'll find out next week. Yep. So, anyway, back to the match. I thought it was pretty good, and mostly consisted of Rock and Owen working over X-Pac. DX managed to shift the momentum when China got up on the ring apron to distract the referee, which allowed Triple H to smack Rock in the face with his European title. X-Pac then hit Rock with an X-Factor and scored the three-count, which completely caught me off guard because it seemed like they were really building up for the hot tag to Hunter, but instead Pac just pinned the Rock without ever tagging in Triple H. But... Kind of strange, but it was a solid match. Yeah, that was, was um. Oh, yeah, sorry. That that was a shock as well, hitting him with the X Factor and kicking out. As was, I know it wasn't quite the move it became later on, but kicking out of the people's elbow as well, X Pac. So strong yeah. showing for Pac. Yeah, definitely. There was actually an odd moment after the match though, because as soon as X Pac scored the three count, Rock was basically right back up on his feet, while Triple H had to drag X Pac out of the ring because he was selling the fact that he had been beaten down during the entire match. So pretty strange. Apparently, The Rock decided to take a page out of the Road Warrior Hawk book of selling. There, um, <laughs> did you, did you notice that? And and what were your overall thoughts on the match? Yeah, I definitely noticed that. I think the X-Pac being helped to the back with a sore neck was pretty much a staple of any babyface victory he had in in this time period. So that reminded me of a a lot of different matches. The Rock, certainly. I think that the Hawk shout there is a good one. I assume you're talking about the uh, infamous return to Raw against Van Damme and Kane. Um, Exactly. I'll never forget that as long as I live. But yeah, I thought overall the match was really good. Um, I always found over in Australia where I am now... um, the late 98 is when wrestling and WWF in particular came back to TV over here. So outside of getting the odd pay-per-view VHS, we didn't really see much. And I had mm. no memories of this Owen Hart rock allegiance. So it was really cool to see that for me. I thought they made a, a good partnership and Owen was a solid addition to the nation. And I thought you had four guys here who, if they'd have wanted to push any one of them higher up the card in the next couple of months, I think the crowd would have accepted just about any of them moving that next step up, even though two of them were clearly primed to go there long term. Yeah, absolutely. In Australia, did you ever get the pay-per-views live, or would they not do it because it would basically be like 11 o'clock in the morning over there? No, we we do. I got like cable TV here in 2001, so the Royal Rumble that year was the first one I watched live in about 15 years. Um, obviously, when I was a small boy in England, I could watch them all live in sort of lunchtime, and that was great. But no, we, we got a few. On free-to-air TV, we got a two-hour version of the Survivor Series Deadly Game, which is still, to this day, one of my favorite ever pay-per-views. And we got an hour-and-a-half rundown of WrestleMania 14 about six months later. But other than that, no, we got superstars over here. And it started out sort of Friday at 10 before moving till about Sunday, 2 a.m. or something like that. Is the Deadly Game one of your favorite pay-per-views because of the theme song? (laughs) The theme song, the fact that I could watch it for free in fairly close to real time. And I just love a good tournament. And all my favorite guys were on that show. Everybody that I love from this time period were all on that show. So what you're saying is you're going to have to come back when we get around to the Survivor Series episode? 
Well, I was actually, when you first approached me about being on the show, that was my first thought. And then I thought, well, that'll probably make me wait another year. So maybe I'll just ask if I can come back then. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'll book it now. Thank you. So, and I agree. It's a a really good pay-per-view and uh, very entertaining. So if you don't know, if you fans out there don't know what happens at Survivor Series 1998, uh, don't watch it just yet. Watch along with the podcast when we finally get there. That'll probably be, yeah, about a year from now. But you know what? Whatever. It's okay. (laughs) So after a commercial break, Sable heads to ringside to join the commentary team, receiving her usual enormous pop. She's out here to watch the next match, Steve Blackman versus Mark Merrow, who is accompanied by Sable's fully loaded bikini contest opponent, Jacqueline. So as a reminder, Blackman and Merrow fought each other for real in the first ever Brawl for All matchup two weeks ago, with Blackman easily defeating Merrow by taking him to the ground 612 times. This, however, is just a standard wrestling match, and honestly, I kind of wish they weren't fighting again after we just saw them legitimately fight each other so recently. It actually makes it a bit harder to suspend disbelief, because now we know that Blackman could easily beat Mero's ass. So early on in the match, Shawn Michaels provided us with yet another interesting commentary moment. Lee, did you happen to hear what nickname HBK gave to Jacqueline? No, I missed that. Oh, I'll just play the clip for you right here then. Speaking of competition, I thought I would come down here and check out my competition. I can't imagine what she could have been thinking when she actually challenged me to a bikini contest. Well, Sable, I mean, come on, you gotta give her. She is sexual chocolate. Yes, that's right. Shawn Michaels referred to Jacqueline as sexual chocolate. So, does that mean Mark Henry eventually goes on to steal Jackie's nickname? Apparently it does. So again, once again on the show, we're getting another glimpse into a future gimmick this week on Raw. Sexual chocolate. The first time it's uttered is in the direction of Jacqueline by Shawn Michaels. So stump your friends with that one. They probably won't, uh, they probably won't get that one. At least he didn't steal PMS as a gimmick. <laughs> God, what a wonderful gimmick that was. We'll, we'll get to that pretty soon, too. That's coming up uh, in a couple months, I think, in TV time. So the match only lasted about two minutes, but of course, because Vince Russo is booking, there had to be some shenanigans involved. Jacqueline went over to Sable and started to get in her face, but then referee Jimmy Corderas, for some reason, left the ring and got between the two of them instead of, you know, actually refereeing the match. Mero then hit Blackman with a low blow, followed by a Samoan drop. With Sable still yelling at Corderas, Jacqueline climbed to the top rope with the intention of hitting Blackman with some sort of move. But Sable pushed Jackie off, and she landed crotch first on the top rope, which is a surefire way to get chapped lips. Blackman then recovered and hit Mero with a bicycle kick, and that was enough to score the three count, so now we know that he can beat Marvelous Mark in both real and fake fighting. Jackie then spends the next minute clutching her beef curtains in pain, so for those of you who are wondering at home, apparently landing crotch first on the ring ropes hurts women just as much as men. So, Lee, what were your thoughts on Mero versus Blackman and the Sable-Jacqueline rivalry? Um, the Sable-Jacqueline rivalry, I've got a, a slight soft spot for because this is, again, my favourite era of wrestling. The match itself was nothing at all. I mean, I spent the match barely writing any notes about the match and just looking at the set and everything, and it really reminded <laughs> me of the um, the WWF video game Attitude, which I was a big fan of as a, as a teen, and I thought, even though it looks just like the set of the video game, I wouldn't have had this match on my PlayStation. No, no, not at all. And I think the maybe, pump kick... Maybe the re- bikini contest. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. The pump kick I never liked as a, a finish either. I mean, it just it's a kick to the chest, and it, it never did anything for me. Jacqueline's bump on the ropes, I have to say, I thought it looked pretty nasty. Um, oh, it and, did, yeah. 
and um, the, the Sable-Jacqueline rivalry, I, I've got a little bit of time for that. I thought, whilst it might have been booked for the wrong reasons, they actually performed what they were given quite well on, on a reasonably consistent basis. Yeah. Sable gets slagged a lot for being shitty on the microphone, but she hasn't actually been terrible so far. I think maybe it's it's more toward the end of her run where she's doing that sort of like, are you ready for the grind? You know, that sort of thing. But uh, she's not terrible right now. She's she's playing her part pretty well. And she was on commentary for a little bit, kind of playing coy about her role with the company because the, for some reason they're still dragging out this thing where she's got a job with Titan Sports, but she won't say what her relationship with Vince McMahon or with Titan is. So really weird. Basically just leaves everyone to think, oh, she got her job back because she fucked Vince McMahon. That's like the only logical thing you can deduce, but they won't just come out and say it. So it's really strange. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Yeah. And that's probably what they wanted us to think. But but they never said it. It's just kind of like, I can't divulge my relationship with Vince McMahon. So whatever. So next up, we had a WWF Tag Team Titles match. Champions, the New Age Outlaws, who are accompanied by China, versus Kane and Mankind, who are accompanied by Paul Bearer. So you may recall that Kane and Mankind became the number one contenders by winning a Tag Team Royal Rumble four weeks ago on Raw, and now, at long last, they're finally getting their title shot. Before the match began, The Undertaker walked to ringside, resulting in even more speculation that he and Kane may actually be in cahoots with each other, but he actually did not make any sort of impact during the match itself. It almost seemed like he actually disappeared at one point, so kind of bizarre. Mankind begins the match in the ring with the road dog, and you can see that Foley's left arm is still dangling limp at his side because we are only 15 days removed from him being thrown off the top of Hell in a Cell. I would love to know two things. Number one, what doctor cleared him to wrestle? And number two, how many times has that guy been sued for medical malpractice? (laughs) And of course, because Mick Foley is insane, he allows the outlaws to spend a good portion of the match working over his injured shoulder. The man is a trooper. After a few minutes of action, The Rock and Owen Hart emerge from backstage and stand on the ramp together to get a better view of the competition. However, Triple H and X-Pac then come out right behind them, followed by Mark Henry and The Godfather, and we have another DX Nation of Domination brawl. While that scuffle is going on outside the ring, referee Tim White gets distracted and doesn't notice D'Lo Brown sneaking through the crowd. The loaded chest protector-wearing D'Lo hits the road dog with a top rope frog splash, then scampers off back through the crowd. Kane then proceeds to pick up Road Dog, hit him with a jumping tombstone pile driver, and wouldn't you know it, we get the one, the two, and the three, your winners and new World Wrestling Federation tag team champions, Kane and Mankind. So for those of you scoring at home, the New Age Outlaws won the WWF tag team titles on November 24th. They lost the belts to Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie at WrestleMania 14, but then they won the belts back the next night on Raw, so that means the Outlaws had essentially held the titles almost every day for the past eight months, but now that reign is over. However, after commercial break, we see Triple H backstage talking with Vince McMahon. He tells him that the Outlaws got screwed and Vince should do something about it. Triple H even proceeds to suck up to the boss by remarking on how muscular he is, and let's just say that Hunter kissing Vince's ass will become more of a recurring theme over the years. But anyway, Lee, what were your thoughts on this tag team title match? It was, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't, it wasn't an excellent match in the in the sense of the word, but it, the players involved made it for me. First of all, Kane looked incredible. I 
Yep. I'm a huge mark for how Kane was booked the first two or three years of his career um, as totally. Kane, obviously. And he just looks like a main eventer from day one. So really enjoyed that. Mick Foley is as tough as nails. That left arm hanging by his side was there literally all match. Before they did anything yeah. to it, it was hanging. It You would think it was dislocated as he walked down the entrance ramp. And he is just tough as nails. And the Outlaws as well. I've all... The New Age Outlaws are actually my favourite tag team of all time. I know oh, I'll probably, wow. yeah, I'll probably get laughed at a little bit for it, but it's not necessarily to do with the matches. Although I did enjoy the matches and think they're underrated, but just the meshing of the two personalities I loved, and it shows that you could take two mid carders or average wrestlers, and it, if they mix well, can be really legitimised. And these guys hanging with the likes of Undertaker and Austin and Kane and Mankind and, and those kind of guys, it never looks out of place to me, so I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, by by the next six months or so, when Road Dog comes to the ring, I mean, the crowd is literally doing the entire beat-for-beat, beat, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, along with them. The music hits, the crowd pops for them. They absolutely love them. Uh, Billy Gunn, obviously more of the workhorse of the tag team, but Road Dog, you know... He knows how to pop a crowd, man. It, it's a really good combination. It's, but it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the Enzo and Big Cast that we have today, where Enzo comes out and cuts the promo, and then Cast tends to do most of the work in the ring, I think, most of the offense. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a good combination. And I agree, this was a pretty entertaining match. And it actually felt like a big match because, again, the Outlaws had held the belts for basically eight straight months and then you just have Kane and Mankind take the titles off from here. So it, I thought it definitely had that sort of quote-unquote big match feel. And uh, yeah, it was it was enjoyable. And um, I, I did remember that this was happening, so it wasn't much of a surprise. I knew that they were going to lose the titles to Kane and Mankind. But it was still very interesting because I had forgotten that D'Lo Brown was basically the one who puts it over the top for Kane and Mankind, of all people. So yeah, solid, solid stuff. So next up, we had a six-man tag match. WWF light heavyweight champion Taka Michinoku and Too Much versus Kai and Tai members Funaki, Togo, and Teo, accompanied by Yamaguchi-san. My first question here would be, why is Taka teaming with Too Much when he is a face and they are quite obviously heels? He couldn't find another crappy team backstage like the Headbangers or LOD 2000 to team with him? <laughs> yeah, it, it was a very odd combination. I not vividly remembering the Kai and Tai storyline, half expected him to join them during this match. So I was a little bit perturbed as to what was going on here. Oh, oh, stick with the Kai and Tai storyline because it's going to get pretty interesting pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say that. Also, Lee, as a soccer fan yourself, were you amused, or, or football fan, excuse me, football, soccer, whichever you prefer, were you amused by Lawler and HPK slagging the 1998 World Cup for being boring at the beginning of this match? Well, I'll just read the line that's written on my page here. HPK and Jerry Lawler insult the World Cup in football. Fuck right off. There you go. <laughs> I would say they picked the wrong time to call something else boring because literally the fans do not give a shit about this match at all. Yeah, so. that was my note. And the 98 World Cup was incredible. So um, you're going to try and tell me Kai and Tai up against too much is better than the uh, 98 World Cup? You're not going to sell me on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually looked it up too. I did a bit of research. Apparently Australia didn't make it that year, right? They weren't They weren't in it? No, they weren't. I'm I'm in English by heart anyway. So um, okay, okay. Yeah, that's that's my team. But the, the whole tournament's really worth watching. England suck as well. So that, that's no skin off my nose. <laughs> There you go. There you go. Early on, we got a strange botch where Taka whipped Teo into the turnbuckle, and then he ran toward him and hit him with a corner dropkick similar to what Daniel Bryan used to do. 
Taka then meant to springboard off the impact and land on the ring apron, but instead he accidentally crotched himself on the top rope, fell to the ground, then had to climb back up to the top turnbuckle so he could hit another dropkick. I always find those blown spots amusing because Taka landed crotch first on the top rope, just like Jacqueline earlier did as well, but whereas she sold it for over a minute, he had to get right back up and just keep going because it wasn't planned. In kayfabe, we may be able to assume that Taka Michinoku has been castrated. So the match ended when Taka and Scott Taylor started bickering with each other out of nowhere, resulting in Taka dropkicking Taylor, who was then slammed by Teo. Togo then came off the top rope with a beautiful-looking senton splash, and that was enough to score the three-count and give the victory to Kai and Tai. After the match, as payback for Taka dropkicking his tag team partner, Brian Christopher started beating on Taka and threw him out of the ring. They didn't really make that big a deal out of it, though, because a few seconds later, Val Venus showed up at the top of the ramp. Amusingly, Val wasn't initially sure if his mic was on, so he said, Hello! Hello, ladies. Val says that when Yamaguchi-san slapped him last week, he realized that he was wrong. He shouldn't be messing with another man's wife, so he sincerely apologizes to Yamaguchi-san. Furthermore, he offers him an exclusive preview of his next movie, Land of the Rising Venus. Sure enough, on the Titantron, we then see footage of Val in bed, but it's pixelated so we cannot initially see who is under the covers. After a few seconds, though, a woman emerges from under the blanket, and it is, of course, Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. Kai and Tai and Yamaguchi then proceed to flip out, and Val says that they never come back once they have a taste of the big Valboski. Knowing where this angle is going, I really hope Mrs. Yamaguchi-san was worth it for Val, because he's going to pay a pretty hefty price for that affair. But anyway, Lee, what were your thoughts on the six-man tag match and the subsequent Val-Venus movie premiere? I thought the six-man tag match was a bit of a dud, to be honest. It really didn't do anything for me at all. I have to say, I thought the whole Val Venus thing afterwards was a little bit surprising. I, I know, obviously, where this angle goes, but I don't remember him being this bad of a promo. I always thought Val had it together pretty well, but um, this certainly wasn't his best work here for my money. The whole video, I, I, I enjoyed this part of Val's character where he would take the, the wife and, and do the video, so I always thought that was quite funny. But in addition with his promo skills, I don't remember him ever sounding this Canadian. So that was a little bit surprising for me. As far as the, the match goes, I've only really got one note. And that was, I find it incredible that Scotty Too Hotty, without the cut open lid and the crazy hair, looks ridiculous trying to just be a normal person. <laughs> yeah, and actually, well, in the match, I think Scotty, even though he's not his uh, Scotty Too Hotty character, he does, he does sneak in a moonwalk or something, right? He gets a little bit of dancing in. Yeah, the kip up and the moonwalk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, a bit of a glimpse toward the future. This was actually, although, in, in terms of a, a Val Venus movie premiere, this was the first time we get a Val Venus movie of him, you know, with somebody else's wife or somebody else's valet. So it's a bit of history here because it's the first time we've seen him in a movie since those debut vignettes. So congratulations to Mrs. Yamaguchi-san for being part of history, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't get used to her, by the way, because she's gone basically within the span of like another three weeks or so. Yeah, it was a good good short gig there. That would be a career highlight, I would imagine. Absolutely. She certainly gets to be part of a very noteworthy angle, so good for her for that. So when we come back from commercial, Vince McMahon is walking to the ring, rocking the questionable fashion choice of an all-black shirt with black pants. He grabs a microphone and, for some reason, requests that The Undertaker come to the ring. 
This time, instead of doing the abrupt raising of the arms with the explosion to turn on the lights, Taker slowly lifts his arms to turn the lights on gradually, as if to say, oh no, I'm not getting another burst of fire in my face, I've learned my lesson. So Vince commends Taker for fooling everyone last week when he dressed up as Kane, but did he do that on his own, or did he have some help? He demands that Taker answer him as to whether or not he and Kane are in cahoots with each other, but the Undertaker's response is, you can go to hell. Vince asks who Taker thinks he is, but before he can get an answer, Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits, and the WWF champion also heads to the ring. Austin says that he respects Taker for challenging him face-to-face, and they will meet each other for the title at SummerSlam, but before then, there's a bit of a roadblock, and clearly, while Vince was standing there, he filed that one away for future use. Yeah, a roadblock, it's a good term for a transitional pay-per-view, I like that, dammit. In this case, however, the roadblock Austin was referring to was the fact that Austin and Taker have to team up at Fully Loaded to face the new WWF Tag Team Champions, Kane and Mankind. Austin asks Taker if it will be the two of them facing two men, or if it will actually be Austin on his own facing three men. The Undertaker simply responds by saying, You go to hell with him. However, before things can escalate even further between the two of them, D-Generation X's music hits, and all five members of DX head to the ring. Triple H grabs a mic and demands that the New Age Outlaws get a rematch against Kane and Mankind, and he demands that they get it right here tonight. Not only that, but he also says there should be three referees for that match, one in the ring, and two special guest enforcers outside of the ring, The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Vince says that the match is on, and obviously this won't be the first time he caves into Hunter, so we will have our rematch for the tag team titles right here tonight, only about an hour after Kane and Mankind just won the belts. So Lee, what did you think of this promo segment? I quite enjoyed it. Um, I found it interesting that Vince McMahon was taking such a tone and attitude with The Undertaker and managed to still avoid eating a choke slam. I was waiting for Undertaker just to get fed up with that and, and nail him. Austin was white hot at this time. He was absolute money on the microphone. He just knew what the crowd wanted to hear at any particular moment. So it's always interesting getting him out there. And um, I thought Triple H really hung with, with the big names as well. He certainly showed a bit of a glimpse of the future coming out and interacting with them and seeming to be on a reasonably even footing. Although I did question his... um career choices in getting a favor from his boss and then immediately telling him to suck it right bad negotiation ploy yeah in terms of this promo i think it's it's pretty interesting retroactively looking back on it because you pretty much have the attitude era mount rushmore in the ring you've got vince austin undertaker and triple h and if they just thrown the rock in there i think you pretty much have the big five or maybe maybe toss foley in there as well a big six but you pretty much have four of the main staples of the Attitude Era right there in this promo segment. So very fitting, I, I thought. Yeah. Uh, and also very enjoyable. Also kind of strange that you get the tag team title rematch in the exact same night. You don't really see that very often. But I'm also wondering if Kane is still, you know, if, if Kane still wants his rematch for the WWF title because he never actually got that. So I, I feel like he's he's due for at least one more title shot. But I was just wondering about that because I was like, yeah, he's getting the tag titles. And then he gets a tag title rematch. But what about his world title rematch? Is that ever going to happen? So we shall see. Triple H could teach him a thing or two about negotiating, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. Can't wait till he, he's on top in about a year from now. I guess we'll, once again, stay tuned for that, folks. So when we come back from commercial, it's now time for our second Brawl for All matchup of the evening. The Godfather versus Dan the Beast Severn. 
For some reason, Severn is allowed to compete in a mixed martial arts fight while wearing a gray t-shirt, which I doubt was ever allowed during his UFC days. And speaking of his UFC background, I would have thought that Severn would have excelled in the Brawl for All based on his MMA past, but as we'll talk about in just a moment, that wasn't necessarily the case. So round one mainly consisted of the Godfather swinging away while Severn tried to grab him by the legs and take him down. Toward the end of the round, after a failed takedown attempt, Severn rolled over on Godfather, and it looked like he actually tried to grab his arm for a submission move, but those are not allowed in the Brawl for All, so it was essentially pointless. The ref had to repeatedly yell at Severn to break the hold because he kept it on even after the bell rang, but Godfather did not appear to be all that bothered by it. Round two began with Godfather hitting a quick right hand to Severn, but the beast quickly recovered and took Godfather to the ground. Once again, Severn refused to get off of Godfather, even after the ref constantly told him to stop for about 10 seconds. Clearly, Severn isn't quite grasping the concept of the Brawl for All. He took Godfather down once more right as the round ended, and they went to their separate corners. While they were being tended to by their cornermen, you could hear a very loud, We Want Wrestling chant from the crowd, so clearly, this is a huge success. Round 3 was pretty uneventful as they slugged it out for a bit, but then Severn went right back to going for takedowns, further killing the crowd. When the bell rang, Tony Chimmel announced that Severn had won the fight, but I feel like it kind of kills Severn's badass mystique a little bit, since he's a trained MMA fighter who just looked pretty ineffectual against a dude who used to dress up like a voodoo priest. So, Lee, what were your thoughts on this fight? I thought, for me personally, I thought it made Dan Severin look rather intelligent because if the rules they presented to us on TV were the only rules ever written down, and I've no reason to believe they weren't, he basically found a loophole that said, if I take you down and lay on you for the whole round, there's nothing about disqualifications <laughs> or breakages. I just win True. by not having to do anything, and it's easy money. So, I, um, I don't know if it was genius or whether or not you can look at it from the opposite point of view, as you just said, that he's probably not going to gain himself any crowd support and his wrestling career might die then and there, but he certainly found a way to win without having to expand too much energy or risk of um, injury. Yeah, you make a good point there. I suppose if, if he was going in thinking, well, let's see, five points for a takedown. Okay, I'm going to take you down and I'll just lie on you. So I guess I'm pretty much guaranteed to win this round. So yeah, wise strategy. doesn't make for the most compelling television, but... I guess it was a pretty pretty smart move. Uh, it was an awful um, segment. Say, yes, yes, it was. But I will say retroactively, I'm finding myself enjoying these Brawl for All fights a lot more than I thought I would, because it's basically like, we're going to take these jobbers and make them fight each other for real. And even though the fights haven't exactly been entertaining, we still at this point haven't even gotten a knockout yet. I am kind of enjoying going back and seeing like, oh, okay, you know, the Godfather actually put up a pretty good fight for himself for somebody who's, you know, doesn't have the MMA background, but he was able to kind of, you know, slug it out with Dan Severn for a bit. So, yeah, I, I, I am enjoying the Brawl for All, despite the fact that it's not all that great. So maybe maybe Vince Russo was a genius after all. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. So after a commercial break, it is now time for your main event WWF Tag Team title rematch, Champions Kane and Mankind versus the New Age Outlaws with The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin acting as guest enforcers outside the ring. So right off the bat, you can tell how intense The Outlaws are for this rematch because Road Dog doesn't even bother to do his Oh, you didn't know routine. Instead, he interrupts Tony Chimmel announcing them, calls Kane and Mankind freaks, and tells them to bring their belts back out to them. So early on, we got an interesting spot where the Outlaws were about to attempt to suplex Mankind on the steel ramp, but Kane ran over and clotheslined them both before they could do it. 
However, when he clotheslined the outlaws, Billy Gunn fell backwards while still holding Foley's head, so it looked like he basically gave him an accidental DDT on the ramp, as if Mick hadn't already taken enough punishment. Road Dogg spent the majority of the match getting beaten down by the champions until finally, Mr. Ass couldn't take it anymore, so he just ran into the ring without ever getting tagged in and started beating on Mankind. Billy then whipped Mankind into the corner turnbuckle, where referee Mike Kyoto was standing, accidentally knocking Kyoto to the ground. Mr. Ass then ran toward Mankind, who moved out of the way, causing Billy to accidentally hit Kyoto with a turnbuckle splash. Stone Cold then grabbed Kyoto's foot and dragged him out of the ring because, clearly, if a referee has to take two bumps in the same match, that basically means he's a corpse at this point. Road Dog then rolled up Kane into an inside cradle, so Austin ran into the ring to count the pinfall, but The Undertaker pulled Austin out of the ring before he could count to three. Kane then hit Road Dog with a choke slam and went to pin him, so Undertaker rolled back into the ring, but then Austin prevented him from counting the pinfall. So with Austin and Taker getting in each other's faces, Kane blindsided Austin, and then Taker started to fight with Mankind for some reason. The Nation of Domination then ran into the ring and started beating on the Outlaws, so the other members of DX then ran into the ring behind them to even the odds. Austin and The Undertaker started to clean house and empty the ring, and it seemed like it was going to be just the two of them left alone in the ring with each other. But the show ended before we could find out what happened. So, uh, I guess Kane and Mankind retain the titles then? Uh, so, Lee, what were your thoughts on this match and the show-closing brawl? The, the match itself wasn't anything major. Um, it was more about the angle. I was kind of on the edge of my seat at the end, seeing the clock tick down and really wishing we had one of those um, extra attitude segments they put on the network for some of these shows. Yeah. I, I wanted to keep watching. So, it, it definitely it held my interest, which I'm guessing coming towards the end of the show and battling against Nitro was the main the main objective of the segment, but seeing the uh, seeing Kane, Mankind, Austin, The Undertaker, DX, and The Nation all out there, this gave me warm and fuzzy feelings. This is my favorite peak period of wrestling, so I, I really enjoyed it. As a show-closing segment, it was great. As a title match, maybe not so great, but it certainly made me want to watch next week's show, so I, I've got to say that. Yeah, I would agree with you as well. This seems to be a standard of, uh, of the Attitude Era uh, episodes of Raw as I've been going along as they'll just be a random no contest it'll turn into a show closing brawl and I suppose it's not as satisfying from the perspective of the match itself but at the same point you're like holy shit it's The Rock and it's Stone Cold Steve Austin, it's The Undertaker and it's Kane, and it's Mankind, and it's just a massive brawl it is definitely quite the spectacle it reminds me of those um, episodes of Raw before the Royal Rumble where it just turns into a gigantic schmoz of a billion guys fighting in the ring so definitely very entertaining and I think you're right that's probably a, a good way of uh, keeping some eyes on Raw as opposed to switching to Nitro, because once those brawls start, you're not you're not going to be switching over to Nitro when you see a bunch of guys, uh, a bunch of main eventers fighting in the ring. I would imagine so. Pretty good stuff. So we're going to dive a little bit more into this episode in just a bit, but for now, let's go to what I assume is Lee's favorite part of the show because it features a bunch of wrestling references in hip hop lyrics. It is time for the wrap up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. The WWF stands for women where we fucking. The ratings recap. 
So, Lee, I'm actually glad you're here for this part because it's almost like a mini version of the Raw as Nitro podcast, where we kind of go head-to-head here. So last week, the pre-taped episode of Raw got trounced in the ratings 4.93 to 4.0 by the episode of Nitro, which aired live from the Georgia Dome in front of 41,000 fans. In one of the more noteworthy moments in WCW history, Goldberg defeated Hollywood Hulk Hogan to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship for the first time. Not only that, but this week's episode of Nitro was airing one night after their Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, so it would seem that WCW has quite a bit of momentum on their side. So before we get into the ratings, I'll provide a quick recap of some noteworthy moments from the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. The Giant defeated NFL player Kevin Green cleanly, so thanks for coming, Kev. Rey Mysterio defeated Chris Jericho to win the Cruiserweight Championship, but more on that in just a moment. In his first pay-per-view world title defense, Goldberg defeated Kurt Hennig. And in your main event, Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman defeated Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone thanks to interference from The Disciple, a.k.a. Brutus Beefcake. With the ref's back turned, The Disciple snuck into the ring and hit DDP with... A stunner! Yes, that's right, Brutus Beefcake used a version of the stunner, which he called the Apocalypse, and Hogan then covered DDP for the victory. So not only did Rodman beat Malone for the NBA championship last month, but he also defeats him in a WCW ring as well. It should also be noted that this match went 23 minutes and 47 seconds. Are you fucking kidding me? Good lord. So the main event and the entire pay-per-view were universally panned by fans and critics, but the silver lining for WCW is that Bash at the Beach did a whopping 600,000 pay-per-view buys, the second most in the history of the company. And if you need a basis for comparison, that's 10,000 more buys than WrestleMania 2000 will end up getting a year and a half from now when the WWF is on top of the world. So clearly, they were pretty successful in generating a lot of mainstream attention for the Rodman-Malone feud. And if you thought WCW was done putting celebrities in main event pay-per-view matches, oh, just wait until next month. But that's another topic. So that takes us to Nitro. Was WCW able to build on their momentum and win the ratings for the second consecutive week? Well, Nitro scored a very impressive 4.46 rating, but Raw came out ahead with a 4.65. A very narrow loss for Nitro, but a loss nonetheless. And Lee, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro instead. Hogan and the NWO cut a promo to begin the show, with Hogan calling out his pal Scott Hall for failing to beat Goldberg last week. Hogan challenges Hall to a match tonight, with Eric Bischoff acting as the special guest referee, and then he does some very odd trash-talking in Hall's direction. I guess we draw the line tonight. So wax up your pigtail, little Bo Peep, because I'm the big bad creep tonight. Wax up your pigtail, little Bo Peep, because I'm the big bad creep. That kind of makes Hogan sound like a pedophile threatening a young girl, which is probably not a great way to cut a promo. Just a thought. So anyway, getting into the results from the show, The Barbarian defeated Horace. That's right, The Barbarian is still getting a WCW paycheck in mid-1998. Hacksaw Jim Duggan defeated Rick Fuller. That's right, Hacksaw Jim Duggan is still getting a WCW paycheck in mid-1998. Bret Hart defeated Fit Finley. Stevie Ray substituted for an injured Booker T and defended his brother's world television title successfully against Rick Martell. That's right, Rick Martell is still getting a WCW paycheck in mid-1998. Conan defeated Barry Darso. That's right, the Repo Man is still getting... I think you get the idea. (laughs) 
Diamond Dallas Page defeated The Disciple. Raven defeated Canyon and Saturn by countout. Now, remember earlier how I said that Rey Mysterio defeated Chris Jericho to win the Cruiserweight title at the pay-per-view last night? Well, Jericho used the wrestling rulebook to successfully lobby to have that victory overturned on Nitro because the suspended Dean Malenko distracted him during the match, so Jericho actually had the belt returned to him. We then had a number one contenders match between Mysterio and Malenko, and Ray Ray ended up winning, so he's now the number one contender yet again. Good times. Also, aren't they coming out with an actual wrestling rulebook recently? Isn't, isn't WWE planning on doing that, I think? I'd buy it. Yeah, I think they actually are. I think they're putting out a legit wrestling rulebook, so very timely, this angle. Kevin Nash and Lex Luger defeated Alex Wright and Disco Inferno. Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Eddie Guerrero by disqualification. NWO members Hulk Hogan and Scott Hall actually did wrestle each other, but the match ended in a no contest when Diamond Dallas Page ran into the ring and started beating on both men. Kevin Nash then came to the ring to help out Hall, but when Nash went to powerbomb Hogan, Hall started beating up Nash. So apparently, even though they just fought each other for nine minutes, Hogan and Hall are still together in the NWO. Sure, why not? And in a rematch from the night before, Goldberg defeated Kurt Hennig in the main event in about a minute and a half to retain his World Heavyweight Championship. So Lee, as a WCW connoisseur, would you say this is an episode of Nitro you would have liked to have watched? Not on your life. Um, I think anyone that... <laughs> that uh, it sounded to me like more like old-school Nitro than just Nitro um, with all those names you threw out. Um, anyone that's listened to my <laughs> show knows my thoughts on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And um, for modern WWE fans, anyone complaining about a champion's book need look at Goldberg, his first two title defenses being both against Mr. Perfect, once not headlining the pay-per-view and then the rematch on Nitro. So I think Raw was most definitely the better show without having watched that Nitro yet. Absolutely. I would agree. I would actually almost want to see part of it from a curiosity perspective. Like, wow, 1998 Rick Martel and 1998 Repo Man. I wonder how that went. So probably, I'm guessing their skills had probably eroded a little bit, but... uh, the two guys to talk about right there, two guys from early 90s WWF who got some good runs. The Model and the Repo Man, good times, good times. All right, then, so let's move on to the Raw synopsis. So, Lee, what were your overall thoughts on the episode of Monday Night Raw? Um, I really enjoyed it. I think one of the criticisms of WWF at this time was their undercard was not so strong, but the way this show was spaced out had main event players all throughout the show. So for me, I thought they booked it very well. Whether you could do that every single week, you know, remains to be seen. But for this one episode, I thought there was a good healthy smattering of all the guys I cared about and multiple segments with main event stars. So highly enjoyable, much, much better than what I've been watching in my timeline, much, much better than what's being put on regular TV every week at the moment. So big thumbs up from me. Yeah, I agree. I think the with the main storyline being Kane and uh, Undertaker, are they in cahoots or not? They also do a good job kind of branching out from there. It's not just Kane and Undertaker. It's various storylines. Like you have Kane and Mankind teaming together, but you have Undertaker against Austin. But then you have t- uh, Kane kind of on the periphery and Kane and Mankind as tag champions. And they're facing the Outlaws and they're kind of feuding with DX as well. So it's not just, you know, a simple one versus one Austin versus Taker. There are all these little other pieces to it, which I thought was actually really well done. Uh, It becomes more of a hallmark, I would say, once the WWF gets around to like the year 2000, where you have guys kind of straddling multiple storylines. But this I thought was really well done. 
And the fact that they're kind of playing it up as shades of gray, like is Taker helping Kane? Is Kane helping Taker? It certainly seems like they are, but not knowing exactly where the angle goes, I am definitely interested in seeing how they kind of pay it off. More Jason Sensation impersonations. Those were quality, uh, and the beatdown he got was also pretty good. I thought for a guy who's not, um, you know, an actual wrestler, he got he, he did sell the beatdown pretty well. So kudos to him for that. The brawl for all again, entertaining. Even though the the fight, the second fight in particular, was pretty shit, I'm still enjoying seeing these guys uh, try to pummel the shit out of each other when it's obviously not their uh, their milieu, if you will. Shawn Michaels on commentary, thumbs up. Uh, even the fact that he dropped an S-bomb on live TV, I think, gives him even more of a thumbs up there. Marrow and Blackman, eh, whatever. And the tag title switch, I thought, was really well done along with the show-closing brawl. So, yeah, I would agree. Overall, big thumbs up. Anything else on your end to add to the show in general? No, um, I mean, I th- think you've pretty well covered it all there. It's a good show to watch. I would recommend anyone who's bored and wants something to watch on the network, check out mid-1998 because it's a personal favorite period of mine. And um, no, I just in- enjoyed watching it. I enjoy listening about it. It's good all around. Fantastic. Well, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. So as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod, or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, just like we did, actually because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. So Lee, before we depart, would you like to remind the fans where they can catch you outside of this fine podcast? Yep. Um, if you want to check out the Rory's Nitro podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, that would be great. Also, we're on Twitter at Rory's Nitro Pod. We've got a Facebook page. And if you want to send us an email and have something read out on the show as well, uh, Rory's Nitro Pod at Hotmail.com. Excellent. And of course, before we go, as is the tradition, whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude podcast, I must ask the same question. Do you have a favorite match, promo, or moment that you would like me to play at the end of the show? If you don't, I'll probably just play a random clip like, oh, I don't know, the recent debut of your fellow native Australian, Emolina. Something like that. Something like that. Well, as you said earlier with the the hip-hop wrestling connection, that's probably my alley there. So I would say maybe the John Cena-Kurt Angle battle rap is something everyone should listen to again. Nice. Good choice. Good choice. Well, I hope you all enjoy that. Once again, thank you very much to Lee for joining the show. And again, congratulations on the birth of your daughter. Awesome thank you, time. You're definitely a trooper to join uh, so recently after after the birth of your daughter. So I'm, I'm, glad you, uh, I'm glad you did manage to get on the show. And I'm glad your daughter is doing well as well. Yes, and thank you for having me. This is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Outside of doing my own podcast, I'm a big fan of this one. It's one that I am subscribed to and listen to as soon as it drops. So thank you very much for having me on. Fantastic. Likewise as well with yours. I always, uh, I think I told you before, I was a little busy the past week with work, but yours is always one of the first ones I listen to as well. So definitely, definitely a fan of the one-man pods. Although, I, although ironically, we're not doing a one-man pod right now. It's a two-man pod, but yeah, you get the idea. It'd be an so, awkward and, discussion, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I hope you all enjoy Lee's soundbite, and I will catch you next time. And we're going to pencil Lee in for the 1998 Survivor Series as well. But uh, in the meantime, we'll catch you next time. You want a battle? I refuse to get ripped.
You little bitch. You couldn't wrap a Christmas gift. You're not all American, Kurt. You wore out the gimmick. He couldn't win a bronze medal in the Special Olympics. I'm the dirty America. Look in my eyes, I'm right here. You're the American dream. I'm America's nightmare. I'm just a punk, pissing off more people than prank calls. Hope you got your three eyes, Kurt, because you got no balls. And when God was handing out brains, it's obvious you didn't get none. I'm usually throwing up two fingers, but you're special. You only get one. So hit this cat's music so the fans can say you suck too. His finger doesn't mean you're number one, Kurt. It means I'm saying. There once was a kid who liked to talk a lot of smack. He's actually whiter than me, but he thinks he's black. And the kid thinks that he's the king of talking trash. Until one day he bumped heads with the king of kicking ass. <laughs> he can't hide. It doesn't even matter if he's rapping. Because of no mercy when I get my hands on him, his bitch ass will be tapping. For 17 weeks, you have waited for the makeover of Emma to Emmalina. Well, here I am. There she is. And now, now you will see the makeover from Emmalina to Emma. What? Thank you. Uh, come again? <laughs> <laughs>